We're continuing with our series uh, through Acts, uh, titled Launched, Acts chapter 1 through chapter 9. Today, specifically, we're dealing with the encounter, an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we find in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 40, the end of the chapter. I invite you to join me as I pray, asking for God's grace upon us. O oh, merciful God, we thank you. We thank you that we have this privilege to be gathered today that we might witness the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be with us and that you would mercifully open our hearts and our minds that we might be receptive to your word, the word which exalts Christ above all other names. We thank you, Lord. We ask these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In space, there is the real possibility for a crew uh, to encounter crises or emergencies. Emergencies that would place the entire crew on board at risk of losing health and safety. And while astronauts train for these emergencies, what really determines the crew's success when they face these kinds of crises is the reaction. Uh, astronauts might be able to train for emergencies. They might be able to go through simulation about how to respond to a crisis, but until they're in that moment, you know, they will never know uh, how they're going to react. And there could be several ways to how people respond to crisis. But generally speaking, you could probably categorize them into two. Either they're going to respond positively or they're going to respond negatively. Either person will, de- will be successful in how they respond to crisis, much like Matt Damon in that movie, The Martian. Uh, he suffered a huge crisis. Uh, they were on Mars doing exploration studies, and then a giant storm came and endangered the whole crew, and, and they were trying to leave. Fortunately, they left Matt Damon's character behind. Well, how did he react? He reacted positively. He found some potatoes, and he was able to grow more potatoes on Martian soil. He did some extraordinary things that I won't go into detail to make that happen, but it's interesting. You could be successful in reacting to a crisis, or you could be... uh, you You could not be successful. You might act negatively to a crisis and suffer loss. And one's reaction to their encounter with the gospel is the same. The gospel is a crisis unto unbelievers because it caused them to abandon their non-biblical worldview and respond to the gospel by accepting it. That's, their, that's the call. That's the gospel invitation. But notice that I didn't say it requires us to abandon traditions or cultures which are good and honoring. I'm not sure if you knew this, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty Mexican. Um, I look like one, right? So I'm not going to give up my chilaquiles. I think those are the greatest breakfast food. Does it? Amen. I got some people here. All right, good. I'm not going to abandon the good traditions that come along with my heritage. I'm not going to abandon that wonderful value of family that our, our people have. 
And what's interesting is that I, it's a mixture. I'm not just Mexican, I'm American. I, there's a combination, a synthesis of that going on in me. But what it, the gospel does require is that we abandon worldviews that are contrary to Scripture. It causes us to abandon our perception, our understanding of God, man, and sin that goes contrary to the Word of God. And to someone who encounters the gospel for the first time, they truly encounter a crisis of faith. In response to this encounter, they're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to respond. Their response will either be positive or it will be negative. Positive would be to submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week, we witnessed Stephen's martyrdom. He suffered this martyrdom at the hands of unbelieving Jews who were unable to bear the weight of his message. What was that message? It was a message that concerned Israel's continual blasphemy of God, Moses, and the temple. Not only that, but their guilt of crucifying the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the resistance to Stephen's message resulted in them taking him out of the city, dragging him out there, and stoning him to death. And this martyrdom presented and ushered in a wave of persecution which flooded all of Jerusalem. But as was taught last week, nothing which occurs is outside of the will and knowledge of God. And we're going to see how God uses the evil actions of men to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ outside the gates of Jerusalem. And not only that, but we're going to see that Luke zooms that camera lens in to two specific individuals. One of them, Simon, who possesses an insincere faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and was eventually rebuked by Peter. But also we see the sincere and saving faith of the Ethiopian eunuch. He believed on the gospel and the object of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first half of Acts chapter 8, Luke recorded how the dispersed church advanced the gospel outside of Jerusalem. We read in chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. In verse 5, we are introduced to another deacon that was named in Acts chapter 6. His name is Philip. And like Stephen, Philip preached Christ. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same message, same gospel. And we even see that he was performing miraculous signs. But Luke wrote that unlike the council which killed Stephen, the Samaritans readily received the gospel message. And to contrast between both groups, Luke used the word in the Greek, it's hamathumadon. And this word is a compound word which is used in both narratives between Stephen and Philip. It's made up of the word hamoyos, meaning similar or alike. 
and thumas, meaning passion or desire, lust. In other words, the council was of the same passion, desire, but to kill Stephen, to murder him. But in the case of the Samaritans, they were given the same passion and desire to give attention to the message which Philip had preached. And because of the strong passion to receive this gospel, we read in verse 8 of how the advancement of the gospel brought with it great joy to the Samaritans. Now, the most obvious reason why the Samaritans rejoiced was because of the wholeness they had experienced by those who were tormented by demons and those who were physically afflicted by sickness and impairment. Even though many might come to grips with long-term disability and illnesses such as cancer, there is no doubt that if they were to experience a miraculous healing, they would greatly rejoice at their new physical condition. And being healed from debilitating injury and disease isn't common today. We don't see people jumping out of wheelchairs. We don't see the blind receiving sight. So this, this was what happening is kind of foreign to us, a little foreign to us. But I think if we were to just simply gloss over the miracles and simply assent to the fact that it did happen, we'd be only scratching the surface of what Scripture attempts to tell us about healing. When we read of healing and liberation occurring, whether it be here or any part of Scripture, we would do well to recognize that God was providing a sneak peek of what Christ will fulfill one day. I don't mean that Christ guarantees physical healing. He doesn't guarantee that in the here and in the now. But what it does tell us is that the Samaritans rejoiced because they understood that Jesus Christ was the only one who could make things right again. You see, for the desire to be whole stems from our, from our knowledge, our innate knowledge that we were created as immortal creatures to the praise of God. Our desire for wholeness in mind when we suffer from anxiety, depression, or any other mental disorder stems from the fact that we know that we were created to be at peace with God. And as image bearers of God, all of humanity has a knowledge of God and of this perfection, which should be. We all have a knowledge of Eden. We all have this dream of what was and of what ought to be. And when we experience disease, we desire healing because we are created for the purpose of glorifying God for all of eternity. And so when the gospel came and brought with it these healings and liberation, it was a sneak peek into what Christ will accomplish on the final day. We read so much in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Christ who is the tabernacle of God, will make all things right, 
And when sinners believe and trust in the gospel message, as the Samaritans did, they rejoice. And they rejoiced because they knew that they had been washed of their sins. They had been declared innocent and in right standing before God through the works of Jesus Christ. And likewise, we today are afforded the opportunity to rejoice because through Scripture, we know, we know that we are declared innocent from the guilt of sin through Christ Jesus. The advancement of the gospel into Samaria also brought with it restoration. What needed to be restored? What was it that was broken that needed to be repaired? Well, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. This verse is a demonstration of the awesome nature of God's redemptive plan for sinners. One reason the Jews hated the Samaritans was because they had viewed Samaritans as heretics, as apostates. They rejected the temple. They rejected the holy city, the priesthood, and even their concept of the Messiah. And while it might sound harsh, it's true. They were apostates. And Jesus said as much in John 4, when he wrote, about how Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But Philip's preaching of the good news of the kingdom with Jesus as the Messiah in the inclusion of Samaria and Samaritans as a part of the kingdom meant that God was putting into action his plan of uniting Samaritans uniting despised people unto himself. God was restoring this people into the kingdom of God. But not only did the advancement of the gospel usher restoration between God and man, but that horizontal restoration, but we see vertical, excuse me, horizontal restoration through men. Men were restored unto one another. We read in Acts chapter 8, verses 14 and 17, now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. These verses point out how Peter and John were sent to Samaria by the other apostles, by the church in Jerusalem. And when they did so, they laid hands on Samaritans so that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And because of more than 500 years of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, these four verses are truly remarkable. These verses demonstrate the transformative nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke wrote in his gospel narrative of how Jesus was decided to go unto Jerusalem. But in order to do this, he had to pass through Samaria. And as they were looking for repose, they asked the residents of a Samaritan village to be accepted into their city. Unfortunately, they were denied because they found out that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the place they hated. 
and they refused them a stay. Then we see that John, when he realized that they were refused stay, he asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's pretty extreme. That's real extreme. He asked for the same judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah to fall on the Samaritans. But we don't see that here anymore. We see John to have been transformed by Jesus Christ. John no longer hated the Samaritan people. Now he was there laying hands in love and acceptance so that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This event was necessary to demonstrate the unity of the church and that there was no racial, no ethnic, no national barrier to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. My friends, the gospel is for all the nations. The gospel is for all people, all nations, all races, all ethnicities. The gospel is for them. And all who hear the voice of the great shepherd who says unto them, follow me, shall be accepted into the household of faith. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. My friends, our society and our culture is tearing apart at the seams. They do not know how to reconcile people. They create laws. They create policies. They do all these things in an effort to bring peace in our nation. But so long as they despise the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will never truly experience reconciliation. The only hope for racism, the only hope is Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which transforms the hearts of men. We observe also that it is in this context of successful gospel preaching that we are introduced to a man named Simon who possessed an insincere faith. Instead of humility, instead of positive response to the gospel of Jesus Christ through submission, we observe his pride. We read of his background in verses 9 through 11. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. These verses twice tell us that Simon had practiced the magical arts and that through his magic he had astonished the people. The people were so captivated by Simon that they referred to him as the great power of God. And guess what? Simon, he accepted the adulation of the Samaritans. He accepted the praise. He accepted that they referred to him as deity. We see in verse 9 that he even considered himself to be someone great. By all estimation, Simon was overcome with the sin of pride. He saw himself as a god. 
And he literally followed into the sin of Satan who desired to be like God. Because of Simon's pride, we also observe that Simon was rebuked by Peter. He was condemned by him. We read in verses 13 and then 18 through 24, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. However, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that on everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The point of these verses is to tell us of Simon's insincere faith, which led him to a false conversion. When Luke describes Simon to have believed, he described him to as being baptized, and he described him to have followed after Philip. I mean, these are marks of a conversion. However, there is sufficient evidence that shows us that this was not a true conversion. And we even have examples in the Gospels of how Jesus preached about false converts. He preached about people with insincere faith. We have one example in John chapter 2 when after Jesus performed miracles and signs and wonders, the Jews were said to have believed upon him and followed him. But John narrated in verses 24 and 25 that Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is in man? Our hearts are constant factories creating idols. And Philip might not have been able to notice the self-deception of Simon, but God knew. And God had revealed what was in Simon's heart. Through Peter, God exposed Simon. He exposed his pride. He exposed his desire for greatness. And Peter condemned him when he consigned Simon's money to perdition along with Simon. Likewise, the early church testifies to Simon's unbelief. The early church fathers wrote of how Simon was the archenemy of the church. One even testifies that there was a, a spiritual duel between Peter and, and this guy, Simon. Another writes of how Simon was the father of the Gnostics who were heretics. And in Justin Martyr's first apology, he wrote of how he was empowered by demons, was considered to be a god because of his magic arts. And in Rome, he was honored with a statue with the inscription, Simone Deo Santo, to Simon, the holy God. And why do I bring this up? Why do I say these things? 
It's because these things are written for our good. Luke wrote that Simon, that he was an unbeliever. He showed the signs of belief, but was actually a tear. He was not a true believer. He had ulterior motives. He wanted to be a Christian because he thought that he could obtain the power of the Holy Spirit and thereby make himself even greater. But the final 16 verses of Acts chapter 8 show us a different kind of faith, a faith which is placed in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ as God and Savior of sinners. We read some background information about this man in verses 25 through 28. We read, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, speaking of the apostles. And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And like Simon, the Ethiopian was someone of importance. Simon was seen as important by the people, and this Ethiopian eunuch was a man of high position in Ethiopia's kingdom. But he's also a eunuch. The reason why he was a eunuch in this governmental position is because it was the custom of ancient times for these men to be put there because they were seen as not being so vulnerable to, the, to, to being bribed through sex. But there's a conundrum for the Ethiopian. He was what was probably called a God-fearer. Not a total convert, but someone who was, who was attracted to the Jewish religion. And as someone who was probably attracted to the religion, he probably understood that him being a eunuch was unable to worship in the temple. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 23.1 shows us how anyone who was emasculated or who had his male organ cut off could not enter the assembly of the Lord. This commandment was written in the context of the tabernacle, but in the context of the temple, that meant that this guy could not go into the temple. He could not enter into there and worship God. So him as being a God-fearer, it's safe to assume that he knew of this. But yet he was still willing. He was content and satisfied with going to Jerusalem, going near the temple, and hearing the praises of God's people unto God. It reminds me of Psalm 84, verse 10, where we read, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And I ask myself the question, if I were to lose it all, if no possession was left to me, if I were to suffer all injury, would I still worship my God? That's a question that we all should ask. Simon wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit for his own grandeur, for his own namesake. But this Ethiopian was content with just being able to be at the threshold of the temple to be with God's people as they worshipped. And not only was the Ethiopian eunuch a worshipper, but he was also a devotee to the Scripture. 
And this devotion to it led to his conversion. We read in verses 29 through 35, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Then the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Not only did the Ethiopian eunuch devote time to Scripture, but he desired the meaning of Scripture. Let me tell you, this is a pastor's dream. This is a teacher's dream that his students, that his people, would not only desire the Word of God, but to desire the meaning because it is in this meaning that we are made more holy unto Christ, that we know our God more. We are sanctified by the truth, the Word of God. And by God's providence, the passage that he was reading from was a prophecy of Jesus' suffering on behalf of sinners. It is here where the prophet wrote, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which explains how only a remnant a few of the many that would believe the gospel message, the good news which is brought to us. And what is that news? That news is that Jesus would come, but that he would come without majesty, that he would be despised and that he would not be attractive, that Jesus would be a man of sorrows who bears the grief of others, that Jesus would be smitten by God, pierced for transgression, crushed for iniquities and for the healing of sinners. And that Jesus would willingly submit to death like lambs and sheep as they go to their death quietly. And that Jesus would be oppressed and that he would be put to death in place of people who deserved this death. That the Lord was pleased to crush the Savior as a guilt offering, but that through his suffering, those who were guilty of sin and believed on him would be made righteous before God that where they would be declared just before the holy God that despite his death this Jesus would be raised again to life and that through his death and resurrection many would be reconciled unto God this passage was a lob for Philip to hit a home run with the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ. And he did so. And what was the eunuch's response? How did this Ethiopian respond to this crisis of faith that he encountered? We read in verses 36 through 38, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. 
And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch understood the idea of baptism. He understood the significance of it. Baptism was used to purify Gentile converts unto Judaism. But in this case, the Ethiopian had seen Christ. He beheld Christ. He understood his need for a Savior, for he was a sinner. And he responded in the only way that was right, that was correct. And it was to perform the rites of baptism, which symbolized the internal reality of being cleansed from sin. And he now identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Simon's baptism did not produce joy. And Peter revealed that Simon was still in the gall of bitterness for being in the bondage of iniquity for thinking that he could buy the Holy Spirit. But the Ethiopian eunuch rejoiced in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and have been cleansed from sin by grace and through faith. And concerning the effect the gospel has on people, Charles Spurgeon wrote, the sun that shines with vehement heat melts the wax, but it at the same time hardens the clay. The effect of the gospel is always present in some degree. It is a savor of life unto life, or else a savor of death unto death to all who hear it without exception. The gospel has an effect. When you're encountered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's only two ways to respond. There's only two ways to respond. And it will either be life for those who believe, or it will be death to those who do not believe. Philip preached the same gospel to Simon and to Philip. Excuse me, Philip, he preached to Simon and the eunuch. They both had an encounter with the same gospel message. But the gospel had different effects on these two people. For Simon... The gospel further hardened his heart, and he continued in his sin. And both the gospels, and history tells us and testify of his unbelief. For the Ethiopian eunuch, he saw his great need for a Savior. He submitted his life to Jesus Christ. And we read of how there was great joy for the eunuch. And I stated earlier, these things are written for our good. That we might reflect on them. And we ask ourselves the question, how have I responded to the counter of the gospel? Do we believe in Jesus because of what we can get out of being a Christian? Do I believe on Jesus because I think it fits my cultural context? Do I believe on Jesus because it satisfies my political agenda? Do I want to believe on Jesus because I think that in church I might be able to network with other people and further my finances, my career? Is that why we follow Jesus? Is that why we're here today? Or do we respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and only Jesus Christ can save? Scripture invites us to examine our intentions, our motives, in light of what is presented in Scripture. Not by what I say, 
not by my ideas, not by my theology, but Scripture tells us right here that we are to examine ourselves. And if you have trusted in Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice because you know that Christ is yours. Rejoice that your sins have been cleansed. Rejoice that you shall someday see the Lord and be united to him forever. What a glorious thing. But if you have not received the gospel, repent. There's still time. And Christ draws near. Let it not go too far. Let it not be too late. Let us do as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Would you pray with me? Oh, generous and gracious God. We thank you that you are so good. We thank you, O oh Father, that you desire to save sinners, and that you've created a way that we might find our way back home to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you submitted your life in obedience to the Father, lived a righteous life, that we might believe on you and the works on you, that we might be saved. Oh, great Holy Spirit, you are someone who cannot be purchased, but you are moved by love to convince sinners of our great need for Christ. And so we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unmatchable, worthy of all honor, of all glory, of all power. You be the praise, O oh God, you and you alone. We pray these things in the most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.